You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Washington Post Live's first look offers a smart inside take on the day's politics. In this episode, Jonathan K. Part sits down with Ann Guerin, Catherine Rampell, and Hugh Hewitt to discuss President Biden's meeting with Vladimir Putin and the significance of Juneteenth becoming a federal holiday. Let's listen. Good morning. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. This week, President Biden returned to the White House after his first foreign trip, and one of the reporters who made up the traveling press corps was The Post's White House correspondent, Anne Guerin. Welcome home and welcome back to First Look, Anne. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. All right. So let's talk about the Biden-Putin summit. Um, The president told reporters, quote, this is not about trust. This is about self-interest. Did President Biden accomplish what he intended to at his meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin? Yeah, Jonathan, I think he did. Uh, It was a pretty low bar that they set for themselves. And and by the the that measure uh, he met he met and cleared that bar and and the main thing about this meeting was to have it at all at a time when the two countries relations are really at a post cold war low we've spoken a lot over the last decade or so about the decline in in us russian relations from something that was sort of warily cooperative uh, a decade ago uh, to real tension and distance now we keep saying it's a new low and then it goes lower it really is it has bottomed out so for the united states and russia to send their leaders to neutral ground uh, have a discussion where each side laid out their essentially their list of complaints about the other uh and, and each leader heard the other other's complaints and then walk away and each declare that that they've said their piece and, and declare a measure of victory that's really all they wanted to do here uh, and, and certainly Biden said afterward that he he had done so, and, and Putin said the same. And so then, given all that, how is the White House viewing how the summit went? <laughs> well, they're crowing about it, uh, and, and the whole trip, really, uh, saying that, that throughout the entire more than more than a week or so that, that President Biden was on the road, he, you know, he made all kinds of, in their view, all kinds of progress in restoring U.S. alliances uh, across Europe before going to the summit with Putin. And, and that was by design. Uh, they say, the, the White, White House says, that by walking into the summit in Geneva with, in, in their view, the wind at his back, all, all these allies together having agreed on a number of things that the U.S. asked them to agree on ahead of, of the summit, that Putin uh, knew that Biden was going to stick by those alliances that, that Donald Trump had undermined, uh, and and so that Putin would know that Biden is stronger as a result. Uh, and I mean that is true objectively. There, you know, certainly the actions of Donald Trump to divide the U.S. from from its European allies uh, strengthened Putin. Uh, he knew it. He profited from it. Uh, delighted in it. And just the mere change in ground on on that point, I think it certainly helped the the White House be able to declare a measure of victory here, even though they didn't actually get anything out of the summit. So let's talk about what some of the critics are saying. Um, and as it gets to what you're just saying in the tail end of your answer there. And um, the critics of the president are saying that meeting with Putin so early in his term 
um, and on such a grand stage, even if it was even if it was neutral ground, was somehow elevating the Russian leader, putting him at the same level as the president of the United States. How is, is there any merit to that? And what does the administration say to that about that criticism? Well, I mean, two things. So the administration rejects it outright and, and says that the whole point was to have this meeting early on so that new, early in his administration, President Biden could say to, to President Putin, here's a list of things that I know you're doing, whether you, uh, you know, whether you pretend that you're not doing them or, or what, uh, including cyber hacking. And it, and we want you to cut it out. And if you don't, there will be a, a series of, of measures that, that we can take going forward. So, I mean, their whole, their whole point is that Biden needed to do that early, needed to say, here are our red lines, here is how you can avoid crossing them, uh, and so that the two, two would understand one another. The other thing I would say about that is that that is a sort of a classic foreign policy argument that really sounds a bit antique uh, after the era of Trump. Remember who Trump met with and how he did, right? Uh, you did not hear the same criticism, except from Democrats who said, oh, you know, Trump is, is elevating Kim Jong-un by being willing to meet with him one-on-one. -on -one. It's true. Trump elevated Kim Jong-un by meeting him one-on-one. -on -one. It was a thing that Kim Jong-un wanted for years and years and years and asked for, and the U.S. wouldn't give it. Uh, Donald Trump gave it to him. It did elevate him. That isn't really the point. The, the point is, can it, it, can it be defended from a U.S. national security perspective to sit down with the leader of a foreign country, air your differences, and try to find ways either to get around those differences or to level the threats you need to, to, to level and walk away? I, I mean, the Trump White House said that Donald Trump did that. That he, you know, he told Kim Jong Un what he wanted. Uh, that they talked about the the serious obstacle of of getting rid of nuclear weapons in in North Korea. Trump didn't achieve that, uh, but you know, the fact that he had the meeting alone sort of neuters the argument now that that Biden shouldn't be having a meeting with Vladimir Putin. I would point out that a number of U.S. presidents have also met with Vladimir Putin early in their terms. So the the timing here really shouldn't be an issue. And remind me, were you in Helsinki in July 2017? I was not. Um, I, to my great regret. <laughs> and I bring that. I bring that up. I'm sure folks watching know exactly what Helsinki 20, July 2017 is all about. And that is when then President Donald Trump stood next to Vladimir Putin and basically just parroted Putin's line about not being involved, interfering in the 2016 election, um, uh, siding with Putin as opposed to his own uh, intelligence officials and intelligence agencies. I'm wondering, it, it, you know, how does June 2020, 2021 compare to July 2017 uh, in, uh, in terms of contrast between the two leaders, Biden, Trump, versus Putin? Well, Jonathan, I think like a number of other things that uh, President Biden has done, this is a, a return to regular order. Uh, it was designed that way. Uh, what the White House chose not to do uh, was to have a side-by-side -side press, press conference that would have stood as the very clearest 
uh, uh, contrast between the 2018 side-by-side -side, uh, press conference with, with Trump and and, and uh, Putin. They did it uh, sequentially. Putin went first, uh, Biden went second. Each gave a press conference in which uh, they, in, in the case of Putin, answered about twice as many questions and went about twice as long as uh, as Biden did. But you know, took a range of questions and and declared that uh, in in each of their views, the summit had been a success. Uh, the, the White House did that on purpose. Um, I, I, you know, I sort of wish that they'd had them had a side by side press conference because it, it would have been uh, fun <laughs> for us. Uh, it, it would have been a, a really interesting way to, to ask each of them to answer the same questions at the same time. Uh, but, you know, the White House did not want to have that kind of, of tableau. And I, you know, I understand it from a communications uh, perspective, but, you know, the, they, in, a, in another way of looking at it is they sort of missed an opportunity to fully dispel the image of 2018. Uh, last question for you, and it's about a question you asked uh, the president in Geneva. Um, you asked him about how he's reassuring the allies who were rattled by the January 6th insurrection, uh, Donald Trump's hold, on the Republican Party and the rise of nationalist figures around the world. What did the president tell you about how he's working through these political realities and communicating to world leaders that democracy is still alive? Yeah, Jonathan, uh, that question actually came in a, a press conference at NATO headquarters, and, and the setting uh, matters a little Brussels. bit because, no, 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 yeah, it, it was in, in Brussels just before he went to Geneva. Uh, the, the setting uh, matters only in that it, it was the capstone of uh, Biden's uh, allies tour. And he had spent by that point about six days uh, talking to the traditional US allies uh, who you know, had felt a ver variety of, of estrangement, hurt, uh, confusion un under the Trump years. And we're really looking to Biden to you know, say that everything has, is, is fine, everything's back to normal, the United States will be with you. And, you know, President Biden is walking into those conversations with a, a number of, uh, I, you know, you could argue hobbled by a number of things that are happening in the United States that the allies are fully aware of. I mean, if you talk to, to French and, and German and British diplomats, one of the first things they'll say is a version of, we know that you know, U.S. election cycles are short. We know that uh, Joe Biden might lose a democratic uh, control of Congress. Uh, we also know that Trump or someone like Trump could win in four years, and we're back to you know this, the same set of arguments that that Biden is trying to, to turn on their head now. So what I asked him was, you know, how can these allies who you are reassuring and who seem just delighted to to see you, how can how can you promise them that what you're saying that we will be with them, we'll you know we'll rejoin Paris. The climate agreement, we're trying to rejoin the, the Iran nuclear deal, we're trying to do any number of things uh, to show our solidarity with Europe. Uh, you know, how can how can they believe you essentially when you know, you've got a, a the prospect of, of a different uh, administration coming down the line? And his answer showed that he had been thinking about this question a great deal. In truth, he didn't directly answer it other than to say, mm. you know, I, I'm not going to make them any promises I don't think will be kept. Uh, the United States uh, has been through this kind of, of political upheaval before. We're we're good people. We fix it. Everything will be fine. Uh, you know, it, it you could tell though that his his own mind has been you know been troubled by the prospect of of 
a change, certainly, you know, another change in government, but also what he sees happening to the Republican Party and his former, uh, you know, Republican colleagues, many of them his close friends in, in the Senate who, who won't go where he thinks is logical to go in, in investigating the January 6th attacks. And with that, we're going to have to leave it there. We've actually gone over time, as always seems to happen when we get to talking. And Ann Guren, thank you very much for coming back to First Look. Have a great weekend. My pleasure. And now let's go to the opinion side of The Washington Post, where we will find my colleagues. Washington Post columnists Catherine Rampell and Hugh Hewitt. Welcome both. Welcome back to First Look. Hugh, uh, let me start with you. You just heard um, from Anne about the Biden-Putin meeting in Geneva. What is your take on how the president did? I wish he'd talked to former Vice President Cheney before he went. I had uh, Vice President Cheney on the program in 2014. I asked him about Putin. He said he's a KGB colonel. When I first met him, that's what I thought he was, is, and always will be a KGB colonel. And that's how he operates. He operated that way at this summit using the uh, press conference, which unfortunately, as Ann pointed out, was not dual to make propaganda points that are ridiculous. As Joe Biden said later, the president corrected him later, but it was unfortunate that uh, a dictator thug who assassinates his political opponents was given the world stage by the president, unaccompanied by the president. I regret that. I think it was a disaster, in fact, but it's over. Nothing bad happened except Nord Stream 2 is going to get built and uh, the Russians are going to hold Eastern Europe and Germany in their thrall. Okay, a disaster. Um, no, no surprise. We'll agree to disagree. One more question for you on this on the president's foreign trip, Hugh. Um, many of the European allies seemed uh, more comfortable with President Biden than his predecessor. Is this a? Do you think this is a return to normal? Is it a good thing? No. I I was listening to Anne, and I wanted to point out there might be some European allies who are applauding him. But for example, in Israel, the the rush to return to the JCPOA has upset our greatest ally in the Middle East, and it's upset the United Arab Emirates, it's upset Saudi Arabia, it's upset all of the people involved in the Abraham Accords, because the JCPOA was, is, and will remain a terrible idea. So for every ally that is applauding the return of the appeasement politics of President Obama in the form of President Biden, there's another ally that says, oh my God, they're back, and they're doing the same dumb things they did under President Obama. So it depends on which ally you talk to, Jonathan. <laughs> let's talk about the European allies. But Catherine, let's talk about the Supreme Court and their decision yesterday on, um, on the Affordable Care Act. Uh, the Supreme Court dismissed the latest challenge to Obamacare, which sought to eliminate the country's uninsurance, pro uh, uninsurance problem. But after a decade, it, is, it, it still, hasn't, uh, still hasn't done that, meaning um, covered as, as many people as possible uh, with insurance. Um, what more can be done in Congress specifically to help millions of uninsured Americans get insured? So I think the news yesterday was very good news. It was the result that should have happened. There were a lot of uh, even conservative legal scholars who said that this very case should have been laughed out of lower courts already. So good to see that Obamacare lives to fight another day. Um, I'll never say never that this was the last of the challenges to the law, but it, it looks like, at least for now, Democrats can go a little bit more on offense and try to find ways to expand coverage as opposed to just maintaining coverage, right? The goal of the Affordable Care Act was, uh, among other things, to uh, get rid of America's embarrassing uninsurance problem and make sure that more people had access to health insurance. Right now, Democrats seem to be leaning towards one 
particular um, area of, of expanding coverage or at least changing how our healthcare system works, which is generally finding ways to lower the Medicare eligibility age uh, from 65 to 60. Our colleagues on the news side had reported, I think yesterday or the day before, that this is likely to be part of the reconciliation package next week in the Senate. Um, it's not a bad idea. It's a very popular idea, but it's not where I would start, at least if the goal is, again, to get as many of those uninsured people into an insurance, uh, affordable insurance plan as possible, because most people in that 64 to, 60 to 64 age group already have health insurance. Right, and you have a column in today's paper all about that. Talk more about that. Yeah, so the area where there's the greatest need right now, again, in terms of people not having insurance, relates to people who are in the Medicaid coverage gap. So as you probably remember, Obamacare did a bunch of different things, including expanding who was eligible for Medicaid. But because of a different Supreme Court ruling, uh, states were able to opt out of that Medicaid expansion, and about a dozen states currently don't have it. So there are these people in these states, there are a little over 2 million of them, uh, mostly in the South, who are too rich, allegedly, they make too much money um, to qualify for Medicaid. They're poor, but not poor enough, but they make a little uh, too little money to qualify for the marketplace subsidies, the individual marketplace subsidies, which was the other way that we were trying, that, that Congress had, had decided that they were going to try to get people coverage. So what really needs to happen is finding ways to get those people coverage, because Congress has tried to throw more and more money uh, as incentives for states to expand Obamacare, excuse me, expand Medicaid. They did this, in fact, in the uh, American Rescue Plan that passed in, whenever that was, in March, that $1.9 mm -hmm. trillion COVID relief plan. Um, states are still deciding not to do it. I think Obamacare as a brand is, is still politically polarizing and toxic. So there are other ways to do it. You could create a public option, which Biden has endorsed in the past. Maybe you could do it just so that it's narrow enough to cover these people. Um, you could say, okay, we're gonna change who's eligible for the marketplace uh, subsidies. So people who are like just, again, earning a little too little to qualify for those could get them. So th there are different ways to do it. And there's a proposal in the House to let counties and towns uh, opt in on their own. I'm skeptical that that'll work. But this is where the, the area of greatest need is. This is where um, the most people fell through the cracks of Obamacare. It's, it's these poor people in red states um, where the legislatures and, and, and or governors have decided, we don't care how much money you throw at us. We don't care whether our hospital system is asking us to do this. We're just not going to give these people health insurance. Yeah, one more question, um, because you you had a stat in your column um, that, I mean, to me, as someone who doesn't follow this um, as closely as you do, that sort of blew my mind. And correct me if I'm wrong, you said that lowering the the Medicare age, right, to, mm -hmm. to 60 won't cover as many people as people think because what is it, 95% of people between 60 and 65 already have insurance, health insurance? Right, right. So people could become newly eligible for Medicare, um, but most of the people in this age group already have some other kind of insurance. 92% um, have either private insurance 92. through an employer. Yeah, 92. Um, have private insurance through an employer. They get it through um, Medicaid or some other public uh, healthcare program like through the military, for example, or they have uh, access through 
um, the marketplaces. And in fact, the of even of the whatever it was, 8%, a little less than 8% who are uninsured, most of those people are eligible for insurance through some, through one of these other kinds of programs. Hmm. So there may be other benefits, I'm not saying there aren't, to getting more people into the Medicare program. But again, if your threshold for progress is just, are people having, do people have access to any health insurance and therefore care at all? You're not going to make that big of a difference um, just by expanding who can mm. qualify for Medicare because people already have people in that age group mostly already have options. Whereas some of them are poor, right, and and fall into the Medicaid coverage gap, but then just deal with the Medicaid cover co Medicaid coverage mm -hmm. gap. Now you could argue that maybe Democrats could do both, right? There, this is we have like a kludgy healthcare system. You could come up with a bunch of kludgy different responses to try to get people covered. Um, to some extent, that's what Obamacare was to begin with. But Democrats seem to have really little appetite for whatever reason for doing a ton on healthcare right now. They're much more focused on infrastructure, on other kinds of uh, social insurance, family, you know, family-related services, childcare, right. things like that. Um, so if you have limited attention span, political capital, and fiscal space, I would say deal with the, the, the poor people in red states, even if they're not mm -hmm. necessarily your core constituents. Right, right. Hugh, this is the third time the Supreme Court uh, has handed down a ruling related to the Affordable Care Act, and it's the third time that the, that the Supreme Court said to those who are trying to do away with it, no, no dice, not possible. Isn't it time for uh, the Republican Party, for Republicans to just give up on trying to get rid of the Affordable Care Act? Well, Catherine said, I think very correctly, most conservative legal scholars predicted this result. It wasn't surprising. I knew that it wasn't going to have standing. Many people thought it was uh, severable, even if it did have standing. Uh, the Fifth Circuit ought to, uh, wanted to remand it for further inquiry, and it went up to the court instead. So it was very predictable, Jonathan. So I, if they make predictably unconstitutional challenges, they will be predictably caught out. What was surprising about yesterday is all the Senate Democrats who slandered Amy Coney Barrett during her confirmation hearings as being a stealth hidden vote to overturn Obamacare. I'm waiting for their apologies to Justice Barrett. I'm waiting for their op-eds in the Post confessing error and suggesting that perhaps their rhetoric was completely out of line with the kind of justice she is. The other thing is this big surprise yesterday, 9-0 on behalf of Archbishop Chaput and the city of, and the Archdiocese of Philadelphia and upholding their religious liberty. It's a huge win for the free exercise clause. No one expected 9-0. Uh, it also announces the imminent demise of the Smith case, which is Justice Scalia's worst decision in his otherwise storied career. So it was a big day yesterday for conservative legal scholars. We just won everything. I'm just waiting for confessions of error from people who slandered Justice Barrett. Well, um, I will you know. say that, that President Trump had indicated that part of the reason he was choosing the justices he chose was that he wanted to undo Obamacare. So I don't think it was totally unreasonable to think that there would be a connection between his his choices of justices um, and and yeah. the the fate of that law and you know another Trump justice of course Trump appointed justice did say that he would have struck down the entirety of the law he was in the minority Gorsuch um, but you know Justice Thomas went with the majority and he was another slandered justice during his confirmation hearings I just like to point out how slandered justices end up not voting predictably as the Senate Democrats say they will. Hmm, slandered justice versus, you know, stealing Supreme Court seats. But, and speaking of stealing Supreme Court seats, um, Hugh, 
you had uh, a, a, an amazing interview with Senate Minority Leader, who hopes to be returned as Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell. And he, and speaking of Justice Amy Coney Barrett, he said that, let me, let me find it here. Um, it, it, he said he would basically go back to his playbook and not advance a prospective uh, Supreme Court nominee in the election year 2024. This is assuming he becomes Senate Majority Leader again, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, in 2022. Can Mitch McConnell get away with denying President Biden a Supreme Court uh, nomination after the stunt, successful stunt he pulled in getting Justice Amy Coney Barrett on the Supreme Court, what was it? Not even a week before Election Day. Uh, yes, absolutely, John, because it wasn't a stunt. It was the exercise of constitutional authority in the majority of the Senate. And the majority it was a stunt, the too, because, he, because of what he said in denying no, Merrick Garland a Supreme Court. Not in the, the even president hearing. Is the same party. Look, the rule, the McConnell rule, is that when the Senate is the same party as the president, they will confirm justices. And when they are not the same party in an election year, they will not. What was radical about, or un, not radical, just unpreviously disclosed in my interview with the leader, is that he also extended that back to uh, the prior six months so that the Kennedy precedent, Kennedy was nominated after Bork was slandered and turned down by the Democrats and after Doug Ginsburg withdrew. Kennedy was nominated in the year prior to the election and he was confirmed. What Leader McConnell said, he doesn't know whether or not they do that if they're in the majority and Joe Biden uh, announces a nominee in uh, 2023 as opposed to 2024. So it made a lot of news. I'm happy to make news anytime, but it ought not to be surprising. The McConnell rule has been the same for since it was announced. If this the Republicans is the most convoluted rule ever. It's it's it, the better way to summarize this rule is that McConnell is going to ma is going to exercise maximal power whenever he can, yes. which is his rule for everything. Yes. But it's and not this is it. not based on some kind of logic and fixed principles about oh well yes, if you is. can align it's this set of parties with this set of you know this set of positions. No, it's just McConnell's going to exercise his power. And come it's on, you. Harry There's Reed no logic to this. And when Harry Reid broke the filibuster for nominees, and Harry Reid broke it, he broke it for everyone. And Republicans picked up the pieces of the Reid rule and said, we will apply to our team what you just applied to your team, which is when we run oh, the there Senate. There is no principle here. Come on. We disagree. I mean, I was just going to say, thieves gone, thieves gone thieve. I mean, he stole, he stole a Supreme <laughs> Court seat. Right, and then another I'm thing. Doing these two on ones, but you're the country doesn't agree with you. So fine, Look, Hugh, Hugh. A presidential term is supposed to be four years. Yes. But according to Mitch McConnell, a presidential term, depending on who's in control of the Senate, could be as little as two years, or if you want to be charitable, what, a year and a half. I mean, that's Our what we're basically, or if you want to look politically, just one year, because by the time when January 1, 2022 comes, everything grinds to a halt. How is, how is that good for the republic, that a four-year presidential term is really just one year? 
It's great for the Republic because the Senate is a continuing body. Their term is six years, and they have the consent function in the Constitution. So if we can all get back to reading the Constitution and understanding the first principle is you can nominate anybody you want, and the president's term for four years is complete with regards to nomination. But the Senate doesn't have to confirm anybody at any time for any job. And it used to require 60 votes. Now it only requires 50 votes. And when the McConnell rule is when a president is of a different party from the Senate majority, they're not going to get nominees through late in their term. And that's just constitutional law 101. I know we don't like to remember it, but that's the way well, it's there been There is set nothing up. in the Constitution that says just, the president only has has power for whatever, one year. We can nominate. I don't know. Speaking of the Constitution, um, it, you know, I mean, you, the filibuster is not in the Constitution. I agree. Um, so, I, I, <sighs> so you can just <laughs> wait for tomorrow. Joe Manchin <laughs> doesn't want to. Maggie Hassan doesn't want to. Mark Kelly doesn't want to. Uh, Kristen Sinema doesn't want to. When you get to 50 votes, you actually have a chance of getting rid of the of the of the filibuster because it's just a rule. It's not in the Constitution. The president's yeah, just advice like the rule is not in the Constitution. The filibuster rule. What happened to advising? I mean, what yeah. happened to talk about another um, um, rule that the president has not only has the ability to nominate someone to various positions, but that the Senate would give the president uh, the courtesy of meeting with and granting a hearing to said nominees. According there to the McConnell's rule, that's, no hearing, no rule was McConnell declared before anyone was nominated. I campaigned on it as well. Look, Jonathan, if you don't like the Constitution, and if Catherine doesn't like propose an amendment this that is the not president, in the, Constitution. the Democrats this screwed the Republicans repeatedly. We're having a conversation about not. I think it's a very here. strange understanding of originalism here right now. Constitution. But okay. It's in consent. It's why Robert Bork never went on the Supreme Court because the Senate turned him down. And he had a hearing and a vote, and he got turned down. There was no reason to put Merrick Garland through that. Yeah, He's yeah. a wonderful hearing, man. Hearing and vote. Hearing and vote are, are pretty key differences to what we're describing here. Poor Merrick Garland could walk through the Senate into a Republican senator's office for the courtesy of a meeting. And, and there is no courtesy provision in the Constitution. And Merrick Garland's a good guy. And before he was nominated, Mitch McConnell and the Republicans said, we're having no hearings and no votes on nobody. And that is constitutional. And our friend Ruth Marcus will concede this as she is a con lawyer like I am. And it's not even close, friends. It's not even close. The Senate has the power to consent. They can withhold it. And they did. But you're making it sound like there's a principle here. You know that there there's some lot there's some logic that like Republicans should never have a hearing, never have you know, never meet with with somebody who's nominated from by the you know the person in the White House if they're from another party, and and none of that is true. There there's no logic the, the, the here. The principle, Catherine, is that the majority rules in the Senate, and if the majority didn't rule in the Senate, Robert Bork would have been confirmed, and if the majority didn't rule in the Senate, we would have a completely different Supreme Court. But the majority does rule in the Senate, and so Robert Bork did not get confirmed, and the judicial nominee wars began in 1987 because of the Democrats. And so if you don't like them, the Democrats should change their way of playing. Kavanaugh, Carrot, okay. Thomas. So, so Democrats should, Democrats should unilaterally disarm is what you're saying. No, Democrats should have stopped the escalation. Harry Reid should, Harry Reid should not oh, have moved God. to 50. Okay. 
So a few things here. One, um, we're going to have to draw to a close this episode of Grievance Theater. Two, <laughs> we are way over time. And three, if I don't end this, you see, you see these leopard spots? They're going to be streaking across my face. So with that, we, <laughs> we, we're going to have to go. Hugh and Sun's Catherine, thank, yes, thank you very much for, for coming back to First Look. Thank you both. Thanks, Jonathan. And as always, thank you for tuning in. Please come back at noon Eastern for my conversation with Pulitzer Prize winning historian Annette Gordon-Reed about her book on Juneteenth. Uh, and then at 2 p.m., I'll talk with White House Council of Economic Advisors Chair Cecilia Rouse and Ariel Investments Chair and Co-CEO John Rogers on closing the racial wealth gap. Join me tonight for Brooks and Capehart on the PBS NewsHour. Check your local listings. And then join me uh, on Sunday at 10 a.m. Eastern for the Sunday show on MSNBC. In the meantime, and the, or I should say until noon, uh, I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for tuning in to First Look. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.